Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth! Hello and welcome to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Today we're talking about how to study effectively and the six pillars of student success. For some time now, I've been wanting to do a bit of a signature episode, that one episode I can point any new listener to and say, listen to episode 66 and the six pillars of student success. It will cover everything you really, really need to know from the beginning. So today is that episode. Some of the ideas we'll meet today may be familiar if you're a regular listener. Things like retrieval practice and spaced learning, which we talked about in episodes 3, 7, 45, 46. Uh, How to find full focus, episode 29, 58, 60. Uh, And even some good ideas on good routine and getting the balance, the work-life balance right. Uh, Episodes 30, 53, 67, for example. But what I've never done until today is bring it all together into a coherent system, all in one place. So today, I offer you that step-by-step guide from the beginning to getting the absolute essentials of your study strategy right. I make the assumption that learning knowledge of some kind is a substantial component of your course, as frankly it is for the majority of students one way or another. But if that really isn't true, you don't need to learn or remember anything uh, for your course, I don't know, perhaps you're a creative writing major or something, then I hope you'll still benefit from some of the ideas uh, in today's episode, which are relevant to all kinds of studying. And then when we do come on to talk about memorisation a little later in the show, uh, I hope that, you know, you might find it interesting and maybe helpful to you one day uh, to know how to learn and remember more effectively, uh, living as we do in the age of information, where knowledge is power. Now, as I was putting this together, I quickly realised that a single episode on how to study effectively was going to be woefully inadequate uh, to talk about everything I wanted to talk about. So this actually turned into an eight-part series, effectively a full-blown audio course to turn you into an exam study expert. So lots to look forward to over the weeks to come. Today, I'm going to be setting the scene and introducing you to my six pillars of student success, the foundational principles that I'm going to be referring back to time and time again throughout the rest of this eight-part course. If you only listen to one episode from the whole series, I'd strongly suggest making it this one. But I do hope you will stick with the rest of the series, um, because in parts two through seven uh, of the series, we'll be focusing on applying the principles from today's episode to talk about specific study strategies, going far deeper than we ever have on the podcast before, right into the nuts and bolts, like the the recipes, if you like, uh, for a really great study technique. I'll be breaking down the exact steps you need to follow in your studying if you want to learn faster and remember more, with incredibly practical sets of do's and don'ts to give you the biggest results from each of the techniques we talk about uh, in the shortest time. 
This sort of advice, by the way, is very typical of the sort of work I might end up doing with you uh, if you join me as one of my exam success coaching clients. Uh, And, you know, from long experience of having done that, often it's just a few small adjustments to how you use a given technique that can have a really massive impact on how well that technique works for you and ultimately your performance in the exam. So I'll just wrap up this introduction with a quick taste of what's coming up in the rest of this course. So part two of the How to Study Effectively series, we'll talk about the blank page retrieval technique or brain dumps and memory journaling. Part three will cover my personal favourite study strategy, which is flashcards. Part four is for anyone who likes making notes or summary notes. I'll teach you a relatively simple upgrade to your note making to a far better, far more effective alternative. Part five is on practice papers uh, with some advanced tips for how you can use practice questions and practice exam papers in some quite creative ways, as well as the more fundamental ways to achieve all sorts of benefits uh, for your exam prep. In the sixth part, we're going to talk about how you can use mnemonics and the chunking principle to really hack your memory and kind of code up even the most complicated bits of knowledge in your course. In other words, a little tool set you can bring to bear on whichever bits of the course that you just struggle to get to stick the most. Part seven is going to introduce a neat strategy you can use if you've got a lot of kind of math style problems to practice. And finally, part eight Uh, is going to bookend the whole series, tying a bow on everything we've covered in the first seven parts. But we start here in part one. Uh, And today I will be talking about six principles that together make up the fundamentals of how to study effectively. The six pillars are, number one, know where you're going. Number two, know you can get there. Number three, make time for the journey. Number four, eyes on the road when driving. Um, Unfortunately, the whole kind of journey driving theme broke down a bit when I got to pillars five and six, uh, but they're super, super important. Uh, They are number five, learn faster by retrieving. And number six, remember for longer by spacing. So without further ado, let's get right into the first pillar and A very, very warm welcome to this first part of the Exam Study Expert How to Study Effectively course. So, pillar number one, know where you're going. First things first, what do you actually need to do to succeed in your course? If you're studying for exams, the first thing you need to be clear on is what's expected of you. So have a list of topics and subtopics and consider devising a simple tracking system so you can see at a glance which topics need more work. A traffic light system can work great for this. Just list out your topics, then code up with you know a red dot for needs work, an amber dot for kind of getting there, and green for I got this. So then you simply start with your red topics and then when you're done with those, move on to the amber ones. What if you're not working for exams? What if you've got a big assignment? Well, you know, I say the same sort of thing. Start by thrashing out what the big building blocks of the task are. So this could be by content area. What are the different topics you need to work on as part of your overall assignment? Or it could be thinking about the different phases of the work. So I need to do some new reading and then some planning, uh, then the writing up and then the proofreading uh, or the editing and then the proofreading. 
Either way, once you've kind of got this map, do a very rough time budget for it. For, for, for it. So if there are 11 chapters that you need to study and you've got 25 days before the test, that's roughly a chapter every couple of days with a couple of days left over at, in hand at the end. Does that time budget feel remotely realistic? If not, how can you reprioritize or perhaps scale back your ambitions to make the task fit into the time available? I really wouldn't suggest being any more detailed in your study plan than that. Uh, you'll hear the student story from Charlie in a few weeks' time, uh, and he makes the point really nicely that, you know, planning hour by hour what topic you'll work on is often just a, a straitjacket that neither works nor nor really helps. Um, you in, in planning, you're looking for a bird's eye view of the road ahead, not a minute by minute timetable for every single moment. I would also advise looking at the destination. So as a good example, if you're learning for tests and exams, most students spend time learning a topic first, and then they might start to look at past paper questions. What I would say is flip that on its head and you might find you can get results more easily. So start your study process by looking at real exam questions for that topic, maybe even attempting a few, you know, making those educated guesses where you need to. Then, when you go back and revise the topic, you'll have a much deeper sense of what you need to know and why, uh, because you'll know exactly how you'll end up applying it in the exam. All of this just kind of helps the topic go in much better. It's a bit like a farmer ploughing his field before sowing the crops. By kind of exposing yourself to those exam questions and kind of understanding, like, how am I going to use this knowledge? It sort of somehow ploughs the fields of your memory and helps the knowledge soak in when you come then to, to studying uh, from your books. What would the equivalent of this be if you're working on a project or assignment? Well, this whole idea about looking ahead to the destination uh, might mean something like looking at how the assignment is marked, you know, if you can, um, and possibly seeking out any examples of what a really good assignment looks like. Now, perhaps some past student projects are available in the library, or your tutors might have made some model essays available. Either way, the more you can understand about what your assessors want to see, uh, the easier for you, uh, the easier will it be for you to deliver it uh, for them. So that was the first pillar, uh, know where you're going. The second one is know you can get there. Some study advisors recommend setting goals about what you want to achieve in your exams. That's absolutely fine. Nothing wrong with a sensible goal, but... I want you to go a level deeper and I want you to decide what kind of student do you really want to be? Are you going to decide to identify as a high performing student or not? Once you do decide you're going to be a high performer, you start to magically behave accordingly. So that might only mean a small tweak to your habits each day, you know, maybe working two and a quarter hours instead of two, just going that slight extra mile, or perhaps using retrieval practice, not just rereading. These small little changes sustained each day over weeks and months can add up to a massive difference in the end result at the end of the year. What if you struggle to associate with that new identity as a high performer today? Well, then I'd say start by pretending. Ask yourself, what would a high performer do when faced with this situation? How would they tackle this assignment? How would they respond to this tricky exam question? Then you act accordingly. 
with a bit of practice and a bit of time, you'll eventually turn around and realise that you can stop pretending to be a high performer. You are the high performer you've been pretending to be all this time. So there's a little bit like a version of fake it till you make it, which isn't a phrase I massively love, uh, but it does sum up this idea quite well. Now, here's a really important point. Ability isn't fixed. Your brain can grow and change and develop. And with the right kind of practice, you can get better at things, even if you weren't so good at them before. Okay, so you don't believe you have what it takes to be a high performer. You're not smart enough, not clever enough, whatever. I'm here to tell you that you don't have to settle with where you're performing today. With deliberate, sustained practice, you can level up your brain and improve your abilities in things. There's really no such thing as being not good at something. You're just not good at it yet. (laughs) So this idea that your abilities can level up and improve is something called growth mindset. Studies tell us that the more you adopt this belief, the more you adopt this growth mindset, uh, the belief that you can grow and change and improve with right kind of practice, the more you're uh, you're likely to excel in life, including at school and in college. Now, this is all kind of quite interesting, um, but the thing that absolutely fascinates me about the idea of growth mindsets is the fact that, you know, this whole concept that your brain can grow and change and you can improve at stuff, it's not just a metaphor. It's not just a nice fuzzy mindset thing. It is literally true that you can improve the very wiring of your brain with the right kind of practice. Here's an example from the psychology literature on this. So I don't know if anyone's visited London uh, back in the days where the London black taxi cabs would would drive you around uh, or whether there's something similar in a city near you. Uh, But London is a ferociously complicated city when it comes to navigating its roads. And you can uh, certainly in the days before, you know, all the taxi drivers drove around with Google Maps. as many do today, you could hop into a black cab, a black London taxi cab, and ask the driver to tell you, ask the driver to take you anywhere in the city. And he or she would know how to get there, even if it was right on the other side of town, like an hour and a half away, navigating perhaps perhaps hundreds of roads uh, along the way. Um an immense amount of geographical knowledge in the heads of these drivers. Now, were the drivers born with this knowledge? Of course not. They studied for it. To become a London black taxicab driver, you had you have to take an exam called the knowledge. <clears throat> and psychologists did a really interesting experiment where they scanned the brains of ta- London taxi drivers before and after studying for the knowledge. And what they found, just totally fascinating, the the little bit of the brain that kind of deals with map knowledge uh, and navigation had actually grown measurably uh, and developed its structure uh, in the drivers before they'd done their studying for the knowledge versus after. So they had literally changed and rewired and improved their brain through studying, through the right kind of practice. We've seen this in the animal kingdom as well. Uh, If we look at squirrels um, that hide away nuts, thousands of nuts, all across the forest in little caches uh, in the autumn or the fall uh, to get ready for winter, uh, as a food store to see them through the winter. They So they've got to remember these thousands of nut locations all across the forest. You actually see that the hippocampus, which is heavily involved in memory, of a squirrel 
uh, hippocampus is a brain structure that's heavily involved in memory. A squirrel's hippocampus will be bigger in the autumn or fall uh, as it's heading into winter and it needs to remember all the locations of those nuts. And then if you scan it again in the spring after winter, it will be shrinking again. So, you know, the brain literally can mould itself to the challenges you are asking of it. And finally, on growth mindset, if all I've said so far hasn't been enough to convince you, then I want you to think about paying attention to the stories of students like you who might have struggled, maybe even had failure and disappointment at first, only they kept practising, they kept persevering, maybe they changed something about their mindset or their study strategy, and ultimately they had success. Such stories can be incredibly powerful for changing what we believe is possible for ourselves. When we hear someone else who's gone through that story, uh, that journey from struggling to success, we think maybe I can do that too. So next week on the podcast, I have one such story for you. You'll meet Katie uh, and hers is a wonderful journey of how she essentially fell off the rails as a student, had to leave her university course. Uh, Quite a painful, quite a tough time for her, only to take some time away, develop as a person and return with renewed vigour, renewed work ethic, renewed mindset on a different course to earn a really wonderful uh, degree, a first class degree from university at the end of it. It's an inspirational tale and there are so many lessons to be learned. So I do hope you'll be able to join me uh, for next week's episode uh, where there's uh, a really great practical example of all we've just been talking about, about knowing you can get there, even if things feel a little hard along the journey. So that was pillar number two. Let's uh, dive right on to number three. It's time to make time for the journey. Behind just about every successful student is a great study routine. Your study routine is quite a personal thing, so I can't give you a one-size-fits-all template timetable that just works for everybody. But if you don't have a regular routine, it's well worth doing the exercise just to take a few minutes. It doesn't take very long, but just taking a few minutes to sketch out what your ideal day might look like. By sketching that clear intention out, you're much more likely to be able to stick to it uh, in tomorrow and the days to come. So here are some points to consider when you are planning your routine. When are your energy levels highest? Do you work better in the first half of the morning, just before lunch, late afternoon? Schedule, study, schedule your study blocks accordingly to take advantage of this biological prime time, uh, as New York Times best-selling author and past exam study expert guest Chris Bailey uh, calls it. You might also want to think about adding in some regular spaced retrieval practice, you know, right into your study routine itself. For example, uh, you might want to test yourself on new material from the day, first thing in the morning and last thing at the night. Stay tuned for more on space, spacing in uh, pillar number six in a few moments' time. Another thing for your study routine is to consider is, is leaving time for you. So I see this a lot. You know, if you're ambitious, as I know many of you are, it's tempting to cram as much work into each day as possible, uh, potentially skimping on sleep. Resist this temptation. I can't emphasise that strongly enough. Take the time to rest, eat well exercise and sleep properly at night and you will be able to give much more of yourself for longer so ultimately you get more work done over the long run not less it's a counterintuitive idea and it can be quite a difficult adjustment uh, first but honestly taking the time to get that work-life balance right is absolutely in your long-term interests 
And finally, uh, think about starting sure. So if you're new to your study routine, perhaps don't aim to smash it out of the park with an absolutely killer day on day one. I'd much rather see you set your sights relatively conservatively with a routine you absolutely know you can stick to, even on days when your energy or motivation is at its lowest. If you turn up on the day and feel like you're able to do a bit more, then do a bit more. Uh, But far better to set yourself up to success and end up exceeding your expectations than setting yourself up for a real, real stretch uh, and ending up, you know, not achieving what you set out to do uh, and getting discouraged and demotivated. I've got quite a lot more to say on the subject of study routine. Uh, If you want to look that up, you can Google the words study routine and you can read my full article on extreme study routine secrets for ambitious students. Uh, As I say, just Google study routine and that should pop up for you uh, on the first page of Google. Uh, Now, once you've got your study routine set out, you want to aim for consistency. So that may mean tweaking your routines so you can be consistent. Again, just to emphasise, I'd much rather you had a routine that you can absolutely definitely achieve every single day uh, rather than one that you you know might struggle to achieve. Uh, maybe you get it for a day or two and then you you know you you start to you start to fail and, and get a bit discouraged. The key to studying effectively uh, and pretty well everything else in life is consistency. Uh, And the difference between high performers and everyone else is often really small. You know, to go back to what I was saying earlier, let's just take them some more specific examples. So two students want to get into Cambridge. One spends a quarter of an hour a night reading around her subject. The other doesn't. Six months later, one has lots of interesting things to say in her interview. The other doesn't. The daily routines of both students were almost identical, bar for that 15 minutes uh, reading around the subject. Or to take another example, two people want to get a book written. One puts in half an hour, maybe even just 10 minutes every single morning to write a page. The other one doesn't. A year later, one has 365 pages and a whole book written and the other doesn't. You know, Again, really, really similar daily routine, but for this just tiny bit of daily habit, tiny bit of consistency. You're probably getting my point by now, but just one final example. Uh, two students are ambitious for exam success. One spends 10 minutes a night memory journaling, the other doesn't. Come the end of the year, one has a fabulous memory of all the key knowledge for the course and goes on to do really well in the exams. Uh, And I'll be talking much more about memory journaling in part two of this series in a couple of weeks' time. So stay consistent with your routine and know that sometimes just quite small changes to your daily habits, uh, you can change your life if you stay consistent for long enough. So that is making time for the journey. We talk, we move on now to talk about pillar number four, uh, which is to keep your eyes on the road when you're driving. Okay, listen closely. Do you want to know my secret to full focus? It's doing one thing at a time. So look, that might sound a little bit cheesy um and it is uh, you know the, but it's so true and there's so much truth in that let me just unpack the idea for you a little bit so it's really tempting to think you can get more done by multitasking but actually each time your concentration breaks or you switch to thinking about something else even just for a few seconds you'll you end up potentially losing valuable minutes refocusing on whatever it was you were trying to do. The brain is not good at task switching. Every time you flip your attention from one thing to another, uh, you'd lose a little bit of time, you lose a little bit of momentum as you try and refine your focus on, on, on whatever the original task was. 
So we've got a whole battery of scientific evidence now that shows us how a brain that's trying to multitask is frankly just a less healthy brain. So if you look through the research, when you multitask, uh, psychologists tell us that we, you know, there's, there's a measurable impact on IQ. Your IQ goes down if you're trying to multitask. Your attention span is shorter. I, that kind of stands to reason. Your productivity is lower. You can't get as much done. Your memory is worse. You struggle to remember things. Your stress levels go up. Even your happiness has been shown to go down. So people that multitask more tend to be less happier. Uh, and, you know, that could well be because happiness is strongly associated with making progress towards our goals. And multitasking does make it harder to make progress towards our uh, important long-term goals. So look, all of these things are, are not a set of disadvantages anyone wants while studying. So you know, multitasking, you know, definitely not a good mix uh, when you're when you're studying. So what, what should we do instead? There is a smarter way. The smarter way is focusing on one thing at a time, as I mentioned. I, I call this idea monotasking. So rather than being multitasking and being all distracted, practice monotasking. Uh, mono meaning one, you know, doing one thing at once rather than multi, many, um, being really disciplined about giving your full attention to the task at hand. How can you do this? How can you achieve this in practice? How can you achieve this you know, zen-like focus on one thing at a time? It's actually a little bit harder to, to actually do in reality than it is for me to, to just say it as, as advice. So here are a few practical strategies that will help you to monotask in your studies. I'm going to be talking about two different kinds of distractions here, so external and internal, and there are different strategies you need to combat each one. So external distractions, those are anything in the world around you that can break your thoughts, even if just for a moment. So let's start by controlling these. First, set yourself up for success by choosing a study environment that has fewer distractions. Ideally, that's an environment in which you only study, so you don't do anything else in that environment, so that your brain learns to treat just simply being in that place, even that sitting in that specific chair, as a powerful cue that it's time to do some studying. Second, we need to get on top of distractions uh, from technology. You know, this is a big one uh, for a lot of us. So <clears throat> start by taking control of your phone. Put it on airplane mode, uh, or better yet, switch it off. Um, then get it off your desk and out of sight. Even just having it in sight, but off, so you don't get any tings or buzzes or notifications, you know, you might still find that glancing the smartphone out of the corner of your eye just triggers little thought loops about, you know, what's been going on on social that day, or, you know, a message you've sent out to someone, you're wondering what they'll reply. So, you know, far better even than just turning it off, like putting it actually out of sight, and therefore out of mind. So that's the smartphone. What about if you're working on a laptop? Well, I'd say put it on airplane mode if you can, so that you're less tempted by the great playground of the internet. Or if you really do need the internet to work, then consider changing the passwords on all of your biggest sources of distraction. So, you know, Netflix, social media accounts, whatever, uh, and then put those passwords on a piece of paper as far away from yourself as possible. So ideally, that password list would live in a completely different room. Um, if you share uh, accommodation with others, choose a public room like the kitchen so that, uh, you know, the slight, uh, perhaps perceived shame of walking past others to retrieve your passwords acts as a further deterrent to uh, getting distracted. 
So we've got on top uh, at least a little of those external distractions. Let's talk a bit about internal distractions now. So it's normal for other thoughts to drift into your head, for your mind to wander when you sit down to work. You know, worrying about other subjects, other assignments, uh, ideas or plans for your social life, for holidays, uh, you know, things you need to do later tonight or at the weekend, you know, maybe just things you're worrying about in your life. There are a couple of recommendations for you on internal distractions, the ones that come from within. The first is to train your mind to have better focus through meditation. We've talked about this on the show before, and there'll be a bit more coming on it next year, so I don't want to say too much about it for now. Uh, I refer you back to episode 31 uh, for more on this uh, powerful idea. A second idea uh, to control internal distractions is maintaining uh, what I call a distractions list. So keep a notepad to hand, you know, piece of paper beside you while you're studying, so that you can write thoughts down, get them out of your head as soon as they occur. You can always come back to them later when you've got the time to give them it, to give them the attention they need. So some of them might be to-do list items, you know, order a pizza later or go and buy more pens or, or whatever. Uh, you know, just write those thoughts down and then you can come back to them and review your distraction list later uh, and work out what are the action items for you to do. Some of them, some of the things you've written down on your distractions list might just be things to worry about. So you can sort of almost give your brain permission later on, save it some time to do a little bit of worrying uh, if that's what you need to do. Uh, anyway, by writing it down, you give your brain permission to just let go of those thoughts in the moment, clear your mind uh, and get back to the task in hand. By the way, a very similar uh, strategy can work wonders if you struggle to get to sleep uh, because your brain is racing with all these thoughts. You know, Just keep paper, keep paper beside your bed, write those thoughts down as they come up, clear your mind, uh, and it's uh, much easier to, to drop off to sleep. Okay, so principle four then is keeping your eyes on that road, uh, being very, very strict about focusing on one thing at once, not multitasking, but monotasking uh, and controlling those external and internal distractions, finding a good environment, uh, controlling technology, uh, controlling the distractions you get through technology, uh, considering training your focus through meditation uh, and building that distractions list. We move on now into the fifth uh, and penultimate uh, strategy I've got for you today. Um, we're getting now into the knowledge and memorization uh, end of things, which is where I start to get really excited. Uh, so the last couple of pillars are maybe slightly longer uh, than the first four, uh, but they are super, super important if there is any little any little shred of uh, learning or memorizing you need to do on your course. So here we go with pillar number five, learn faster by retrieving. So we've talked about retrieval practice on the podcast many times before, but I couldn't do an episode on how to study effectively without at least mentioning it. Because like really, honestly, if there's only one piece of advice you ever take away from anything I have ever said, uh, it's to do retrieval practice well and constantly. So much of the rest of this series of episodes in the How to Study Effectively course they're going to be based on retrieval practice. In particular, episodes two through five of the series are essentially going to be deep dives into specific techniques that are based on retrieval practice. Things like flashcards uh, and Q&A notes, uh, practice papers, uh, memory journaling, brain dumps, 
all of those things rely on retrieval practice. I'm going to be talking to you in those later episodes about the kind of specific step-by-step recipes for using those techniques. Uh, but you can't get anywhere without just firstly understanding like what retrieval practice is, why it works, and what it means for effective ways to study. So here is a reminder. So there are lots of different ways to study. I've just mentioned a few of them now. Um, any study strategy you could possibly come up with, I could categorise it for you into one of two camps. Categorise it into one of two categories. Either long way study techniques or smart way study techniques. So long way study techniques are those that, uh, you know, might work eventually to help you learn uh, some of the knowledge might rub off, but it'll be a slow process and it's not particularly reliable once you get into an exam. You're much more likely to forget things when you actually need it most. Smart way techniques, on the other hand, get your results much faster. Uh, you can learn faster, remember more, uh, and crucially remember for longer and more reliably. Now, what do long way ha- techniques have in common? What do smart way techniques have in common? Well, Long way techniques, the thing that characterises those is the sum element of pushing knowledge into memory. So you're taking an information through your five senses, particularly sight if you're reading, or through your ears, through hearing if you're listening to information. The information is going in. You are taking in information from your environment. Now, we often need to start with kind of long way techniques. You need to take in the information in the first place. But the real trick, if you want to study effectively, is to move on as quickly as possible, probably before you feel truly comfortable, into smart way techniques. So what's going on in a smart way is, as you've probably seen, you probably might have guessed where I'm going, uh, they are techniques that involve retrieval practice. In other words, some element of testing yourself, pulling knowledge out of memory, uh, some knowledge, some element of reaching back into your memory, trying to remember the answer to a question. When you're doing that, that is retrieval practice. And if you're doing that in a revision technique, a study technique, then I'm very happy to call it a smart way technique uh, that will give you bigger results in less study time. So let me just kind of do a bit of a categorization of a few common study techniques for you then. So long way techniques, um, perhaps the most fundamental way of studying is just reading or rereading uh, your, your notes or your books. That is firmly a long way technique. So very hard to get information to stick just by reading it over and over again. A slight improvement on rereading is highlighting or underlining, you know, just not highlighting whole paragraphs, but just highlighting like the 10-20% of the text, the really key words. Um, That is still a long way technique because there's no element of testing yourself or remembering what you know, no retrieval practice, in other words, but it is slightly better at least than just rereading. Uh, there's a very minor advantage just by, um, well, if you if you know how your eyes read, if you know how your eyes work um, when you're reading, they move in these little jumps called saccades. Um, so you're not actually focusing on every single word in turn. You sort of jump, maybe focus once every six words and take in the other words in peripheral vision. So when you're doing highlighting, that helps your eyes to slow down and not skip over any important information, as well as just making it easier if you come back to those notes again to, to see the key bits popping out at you. So two long way techniques, then rereading, highlighting or underlining. And 
Now, I want to talk about making notes next. So again, like rereading, making notes, just phenomenally popular. Uh, I see I see students doing this all the time. Unfortunately, it is still a long way technique. So it may be like active, you know, you're doing something, you're writing, um, but you're not crucially pulling anything out of memory when you're making notes. Mind maps or spider diagrams, it's kind of like making notes, but like in you know, drawing visual uh, representations, showing how the knowledge links together. You know, that might be slightly better than making notes for some situations uh, because it helps you sort of see how the knowledge is structured and how different bits of the topic link into other bits. But again, you know, no element of sort of testing yourself on what you know, no element of, no element of pulling things out of memory. Uh, so unfortunately, that does count as a long way technique as well. Now, again, just before I move on to the smart way techniques, like you might want to start out with long way techniques. Uh, if, you know, if you've got plenty of time, uh, particularly, uh, you know, maybe you can afford to spend a little bit of time on the long way techniques, just getting familiar with the material in the first place. But what you want to do for biggest results in less time is move on as quickly as possible into doing the retrieval practice, pulling stuff out of memory, testing yourself on what you know. In other words, moving into the smart way techniques uh, as much as quickly as you possibly can so that you spend the majority of your study time with the smart way strategies. So just to mention three examples, flashcards, I'm going to be talking about those in the third part of this How to Study Effectively series. They're a fantastic way to test yourself. You look at a question on the front, try and remember the answer on the back. Brilliant, really simple, uh, really effective bit of retrieval practice. Um, practice questions, so doing practice questions from your books or uh, past exam papers. You know, Again, uh, assuming you're doing it closed book with your notes away, that's a, again a really effective way to do retrieval practice. Um, I'm going to talk more about that in part five of this How to Study Effectively series. Uh, and finally, uh, quiz apps. So they work in very similar way to flashcards. Uh, they're basically just digital flashcards. So things like Anki or Quizlet that I know many of you like, uh, that's the same as flashcards. So when you tune in to hear my flashcard thoughts, uh, you'll get some best practice tips for using quiz apps as well, because they're just two different formats for exactly the same thing. Um just before I move on from this categorization, I did just want to circle back on making notes because there is a way you can upgrade your note making uh, to actually make it properly effective. Um, I call it Q and A notes, um, and I'm going to be talking about more. I'm going to be talking about that more in part four of this series. So uh, do join me again for that if you like making notes. So um, that's a bit of a, a categorization for different techniques. Uh, the next thing I just wanted to briefly mention on retrieval practice was the fact that, you know, I I, did, I don't want you to just take my word for it. Um, so we've got no kind of guest experts or psychologists here on the show today. It's it's just me. Um, but I do just want to give you a quick experiment, a, a, a quick uh, study from the uh, academic literature to just really underline how powerful retrieval practice can be. Um, so it was uh, Rodinger and Karpicki, 2006. They took two groups of students, got one group to learn by rereading, one group to learn by retrieval practice. They brought both groups back a week later, gave them a test on what they'd just learned. Uh, the retrieval practice group outperformed the rereaders by 20 percentage points. So the rereaders got about 40%. The retrieval practice group got about 60%, like 40% versus 60%. Like that is just a massive, massive improvement in a test score. Both groups had exactly the same amount of study time, 
but just this massive impact uh, from switching your study technique. You know, that really is at the heart of the power of studying effectively. And the reason I get so excited about teaching this stuff, um, just the size of those improvements that are, are possible. There's one final thing that's quite intriguing about the Rodring and Kopicki study. They actually asked the students in the study to predict their test score on the way out of that learning session on the first week. So they'd both done, I I can't remember exactly, an hour or so maybe uh, of studying using either rereading or retrieval practice. And the uh, students were all asked on their way out of the, the experimenter's lab, you know, we'll bring you back in a week's time for the test you know, just predict your score. What do you think you'll get? Now, the really interesting thing to me is that the rereaders were actually more confident on their test score than the retrieval practice group. The rereaders thought they would get a better score than the retrieval practice group uh, on average. And I think that just goes to show that, you know, sometimes our intuitions about what's working well for us are not always uh, very accurate. So, um, you know, if you're sceptical about the whole idea of retrieval practice, what I would say is just, you know, take an upcoming test, Try retrieval practice. Properly try it. Uh, give it a really good go. Um, and you know, it might not. You might not feel the difference like on day one, um, but certainly by kind of a week later, uh, if you're testing yourself on knowledge a week later, you know, you should really start to feel the difference compared to how you normally study. Okay. One final myth I want to, or not final myth, uh, one final kind of uh, frequently asked question, I guess I want to clear up on retrieval practice before we, we move on, is uh, just the, the the kind of the concern that you have to get everything right when you're doing your retrieving. So, you know, testing yourself on, you know, on what you know, asking yourself questions in some way, trying to remember the answers. You know, do you have to be getting everything right? Uh, the answer is no, of course not. Uh, like it's it's great if you remember accurately, you know, your memory of that information will get significantly stronger. Uh, like that's the power of retrieval practice. That's great. Um, but it actually doesn't matter if you remember inaccurately, you know, get the answer wrong or you just simply don't have a clue. Uh, because in, you know, there's latitude places, you know, you didn't know the answer or you didn't have a clue. Um, that will highlight where you need to do more work, highlight where you need to prioritise your time uh, and also help you learn. Um, like humans are evolutionarily hardwired to learn from things in the environment that we find surprising. So when we... Um, so when we come across, you know, mistakes, things that we got wrong or, you know, just didn't know the answer to... Uh, the brain is more likely to pay attention. Uh, it's more likely to to kind of you know latch on to that bit of information and and try and uh, absorb it and remember it for next time, much more so than if you hadn't just tested yourself on it uh, at all. So honestly, it really doesn't matter whether you get it right or wrong. Um, it's 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 all part of the process. It's all part of the exercise. It's all good practice. So pillar number five: learn faster by retrieving. Don't just push information in over and over again by rereading, highlighting, or taking notes. Like it might feel as though you're learning. You know, remember that Rudring and Carpicky study. Uh, the people that were coming out of the study session most confidently were the ones that had been doing the rereading. Uh, so, like, it might feel as though you're learning if you're rereading, but I promise you, you will quickly forget uh, what you studied. So, instead, focus on pulling information out of memory and testing yourself on what you know. So, less time rereading doing highlighting, making notes, more time uh, with retrieval practice techniques like flashcards, quiz apps, uh, the Q&A strategy I'll talk about in episode four of this series, uh, and practice papers. So 
We have one final pillar coming up. It is number six, Remember for Longer by Spacing. So we have one final pillar coming up. It is number six, Remember for Longer by Spacing. So retrieval practice is awesome and will solve all our problems, right? Uh, Not quite. (laughs) It's phenomenally effective, but you do need to combine it with one other principle if you really want to get the most out of it. That's because no matter how well you learn something on day one, we'll forget it over time. It's called the forgetting curve. Uh, As the weeks and days go by, uh, we can remember less and less of whatever it was we knew on day one. It's kind of hard to talk about curves and graphs in a podcast. Um, But if you want to go to examstudyexpert.com forward slash free tips, you can download my cheat sheet, which summarises many of the most important ideas from this episode. uh, And it includes a nice illustration of the forgetting curve, uh, as well as much more. Again, that's examstudyexpert.com forward slash free tips. Now, the only way to beat the forgetting curve is spaced learning. That means revisiting the topic at time intervals on different days. Some people call it spaced repetition. Uh, To psychologists, it's spaced learning. I'm a psychologist, so I call it spaced learning. It's the same idea as spaced repetition. Now, like retrieval practice, spaced learning is incredibly powerful stuff. Uh, So to make sure you don't have to take my word for this one, uh, let's hear again from spaced learning expert Dr. Carolina Kupertetzel from the University of Glasgow. So we know from massive body of research that space practice works with different kinds of material, with different learners, so young learners, uh, more mature learners. We know that it works for different types of skills that you want to acquire. It works for acquiring knowledge, remembering facts, but it also works for motor skills. We have those different experimental studies that were conducted over the the past years and showing really that um, it accumulated this evidence that space practice is a strategy that works for many different domains and for many different um, learners. The principle of spacing is simple. It's not about spending more hours on a topic necessarily. It's just about spreading that time out. And that's what Rise, gives rise to that, you know, really powerful effect that uh, Dr. Carolina Kupertetzel was was describing. Uh, it's been shown many, many times in the in the academic literature, just like retrieval practice. So, what you want to think about? Uh, here's an example. So, rather than spending an hour all in one go uh, to do your exam study on a given topic, take that hour that you would have done anyway and split it up. So, do half an hour to start with maybe 10 minutes later in the day, 10 minutes the following day, 10 minutes after a week or so. You've still done an hour in total, but you've spread it out. You've spaced it out over time. That's what spaced learning is all about. Now, really key point, when it comes to actually doing the spacing, what you really want to be doing is spaced retrieval practice. Not just any old, uh, you know, looking at a topic when you come back and do your spaced uh, revisit of that topic. You know, don't just come back and reread it the next day. When you come back to it the following day or a week later or whenever, you want to test yourself on it. 
And that means testing yourself on it from cold. Don't just have a little browse through that topic before you do the testing to refresh your memory. That kills the whole point of spaced retrieval practice. It should feel a bit hard when you do your spaced retrieval practice. I've got a little demonstration that I like to use that gives you the exact feeling of what I mean when I say should feel a bit hard when you're doing your spaced retrieval practice. So try and answer the following three questions. I'll give you a little pause after each one to give you a chance to think. I'll start with an easy question. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Got your answer? Wasn't too hard, hopefully. All right, this next one might test you a bit. What did you have for dinner on this date one month ago? So I say it's the 15th of September. What did you have for dinner on the 15th of August? Bit tricky, that one, huh? (laughs) Um, Okay, here's one final question. What did you have for lunch two days ago? So lunch two days ago. You might be able to get this one. Give it a little bit of thought for a couple of seconds. Now, for most people, the breakfast today question is too easy. It's still really fresh in memory. You barely have to think about it at all. So if you're doing your spaced retrieval practice and it all feels that easy, you're getting all the questions right without hesitation, probably is a sign that you might want to think about spacing out more, leaving a longer time gap before you come back to things the next time. On the other hand, if you're not getting any questions right, or it feels totally impossible to remember, like that, uh, what did you have for dinner one month ago? You've probably left it too long. So not to worry, that's okay. You can go back and do some long way techniques at that point, go back and reread it or whatever, do highlighting, um, but just reduce the time lag for spacing next time. What you're aiming for is getting most, perhaps not all, but most questions right, perhaps with a little bit of hesitation and thinking time as you reach back into your memory, like most people feel when they do you know, that lunch two days ago example. Most people I do that with can get the right answer, can, get, can remember what they had for lunch two days ago, but it takes them a few moments to figure it out. So that is what you're aiming for, for the spacing, the best spaced learning. Like you're getting most questions right with a little bit of thinking time, a little bit of uh, screwing up your eyes and trying to reach back into your memory and remember the right answer. So I call this whole principle uh, of, you know, how to use spacing really well. I call it the Goldilocks effect. You know, after Goldilocks and the three bears, porridge doesn't want to feel too uh, pot or too cold. It wants to be just right or not too salty or not too sugary. It's, it's just right. So similarly, your spaced retrieval practice doesn't want to feel too easy, but it doesn't want to feel impossible either. You want to aim for somewhere in the middle, that just right zone in the middle where it's challenging, but not impossible. If it's too difficult to remember, space less next time, leave a shorter time gap. If it's too easy uh, and all the answers you get 100% right, no hesitation, then leave a longer time lag. Um, It's related to the idea of, this is the idea of desirable difficulties that uh, Dr. Veronica Yan was talking to us about in the podcast earlier in the year. So a final top tip for spacing, perhaps the most important tip for spacing of all. Experience tells me that this can actually be a pretty difficult principle to put into action. You know, it's a simple idea, you know, spread it out over time, come back to it on different days. But in reality, once you start to do that, all those different topics, you know, tracking the spacing you need to do for each, when you first did it, when you second did it for the second time, when you need to come back to it for the third time. Like, frankly, it can turn into a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare, keeping tabs and scheduling in all those spaced repetitions. 
Now, I don't like complicated because it means it's very unlikely to actually happen. I like simple because it means you're far more likely to actually be able to do it. And of all the things we talk about, I go, I want you to be able to do them. That's the whole point. I want to make your life easier and more successful in your studies. So to make sense, to make spaced learning simple so you can actually do it, uh, like I, I, my top recommendation is coming up with a strategy to build spacing right into your study routine itself. So when you're thinking about pillar number three, making time for the journey, um, you know, as you're designing your study routine, I mentioned at the time thinking about building in some time for spaced repetitions right into your study routine. Like Here's an example of what it would look like. This is how I was building spaced repetition right into my study routine as a psychology student. So I was working for about you know, 50, 55 minutes at a time. Rather than doing 50, 55 minutes of new stuff, I'd take five minutes at the end of each session – I was mainly making flashcards uh, as a university student. Yeah, that just happened to be my personal preference. Um, so I'd take five minutes at the end of that 55-minute session uh, and I would just recap all the flashcards I'd just done. So flashcards I've made in the last 50 minutes, I'd test myself on them uh, for the first time. Then I'd go away, have a short break, grab a cup of tea or refill my water bottle. I'd come back a few minutes later and I would do exactly the same thing again. I would test myself on those flashcards a second time. Uh, and... You know, I was aiming to get the ones that I got wrong a minute ago. I was then aiming to get you know as many of those right as I could the second time around as possible. So within like ten minutes, I'd already tested myself on all the new flashcards twice. Uh, the end of the day, uh, I think I mentioned this back in pillar four when I was talking about um, you know building your study routine. You know, maybe the last slot of the day. So save you know half an hour or an hour at the end of the day don't do anything new in that time so no new flashcards just use that to recap on all the new materials from that day so again my case i was making flashcards my final um you know i can't remember what it was exactly maybe half an hour 40 minutes at the end of the day i would test myself on all the new flashcards from that day for what was then a third time go to bed wake up the next morning the first slot of the next day would be, again, retrieval practice from yesterday. So by the time we were 24 hours in, I'd retrieved, I'd tested myself on new flashcards four times. Uh, five minutes at the end of the session, five minutes at the start of the next session, um, half an hour at the end of the day, half an hour the following morning. Now, that's like quite a hardcore spacing schedule. That's a lot of repetitions within the first 24 hours. I found I needed to do that because the information I was learning was pretty darn hard. Like it was complex. There was a lot of it. Uh, I found any less than that um, and it just wasn't sticking. You know, if you're working on something a little bit you know, easier or you find it sort of sticks a, a bit more straightforwardly, maybe you don't need to do all those repetitions. You know, again, what I'm talking about here is just an example. It's, you know, it's it's an illustration, not a kind of template to follow. So, you know, use the Goldilocks principle. So when you're doing your spaced repetitions, it wants to be uh, a bit hard, but not impossible, not too easy. You know, use that principle to kind of come up with your own way to build spacing right into your study routine. So, that wraps up uh, pillar number six, the sixth and final pillar. So space out your retrieval practice, keep testing yourself, and it will stick. A word of warning, though, uh, just on the last two pillars we talked about, so retrieval practice and spaced learning. Um, when you start to do spaced retrieval practice well, you know, using that Goldilocks principle, make it, spacing it long enough that it feels a bit hard to remember stuff, frankly, that will feel like harder work than just making notes or just rereading. And that is a good thing. Uh, you know, like if you were an athlete and you were doing workouts that 
barely made you break a sweat, you're probably not going to be waking up the next morning with a body that is fitter and stronger. Uh, it's the same with your memory. Like if you're just finishing your study sessions and you know you just kind of with that feeling of oh you know I felt like I gave my memory a bit of a workout there, uh, you know I did some hard remembering. Like that is good. That is what you want to be aiming for. And the beauty is you won't need to study for as long hours if you are doing that. So you know as I like to say to my coaching clients, you know, feel the burn when you learn. Uh, you know just like an athlete. Um, you know, if you we are memory athletes as students, so you know, feel the burn when you learn. Um, work smarter, work with more intensity, uh, and you won't need to work for as much study time. You get better results with less stress. Again, it's all about working smarter, not harder. Okay, I'm going to recap all six pillars for you in just a moment, uh, but. Again, remember that this episode is just the beginning of this How to Study series. Do stay tuned for the remainder of the series uh, over the, the weeks to come as I break down you know, the actual steps you want to follow for best results with a range of great study strategies. I'm going to be starting with the strategy of blank page retrieval uh, in part two of this eight-part series, which is coming your way in a couple of weeks' time. In the meantime, I do hope you'll be able to join me next week uh, for that inspirational story of success after adversity uh, with recent university graduate Katie. Uh, that'll be a good episode. I hope you'll be able to tune in for that one. Uh, and do remember, uh, as I mentioned, uh, that I have summarised some of the most important ideas from this episode, including the forgetting curve and uh, several other uh, really, really important ideas in my exam success cheat sheet. You can pick up your copy absolutely free at examstudyexpert.com forward slash free tips. Uh, it's examstudyexpert.com forward slash free tips. So as promised, let me wrap up today by just recapping the six pillars one last time for you. So number one was know where you're going. Have a clear outline of what it is you need to do before you start, whether that's the topics you need to learn for a test or exam or a clear vision of you know what good looks like, what a good project looks like, what a good assignment looks like. Pillar number two, know you can get there. Remember, your brain can grow and change. You can improve and level up your abilities. This idea of growth mindset. So play the yet game. Say that you're not good at maths yet. Uh, and remember that this is literally true at the level of the wiring of your brain sometimes. So, you know, your brain is not just growing and changing as a kind of nice metaphor. It can be literally true at the very level of your brain. So the right kind of practice, the right kind of deliberate practice. Pillar number three is making time for the journey. So making time for that practice, establishing a good study routine with enough time to work, but also enough time to sleep, eat, exercise, as well as relax and have fun once in a while. Remember, consistency is key. It's what you do every day that counts to build long-term results. Pillar number four, eyes on the road while driving. Uh, practice monotasking. So not multitasking and being distracted, but monotasking and being very focused on just one thing at a time and using the various techniques we talked about to control both external and internal distractions as best you can. Pillar number five is learning faster by retrieving. So pulling information out of memory by testing yourself. And number six was remember for longer by spacing. So spacing out that retrieval practice over time. Ideally, building spaced retrieval sessions right into your study routine so that you can just do it on autopilot. For example, starting or ending the day with a retest on everything you studied in the past 24 hours. 
And as I hope you're starting to see, like the beauty of all of these six pillars is they kind of they work together as a complete and coherent system. You know, knowing where you're going, make sure you're spending time on the right things. Know that you can get there and making time for the journey. Make sure that you're both appropriately motivated and creating enough time each day and each week for the practice, the studying that you need to succeed. Learning faster by retrieving and remember for longer by spacing, those two final pillars on memory, those help you, well, (laughs) learn faster and remember for longer, but they do take more cognitive effort. Feel the burn when you learn. uh, And they're more taxing practices for your brain compared to, you know, just rereading or kind of lower value study strategies. So you do need those strategies for 100% focus and concentration from pillar number four, eyes on the road when driving. Otherwise, you might struggle to do pillar number five and six. But the good news is that when you do all of this and you do start to learn faster and remember more, it gets easier to make time for the journey because you won't need to crazy long study hours to achieve great results. So that makes it easier to achieve uh, you know, pillar three. Um, and because you're mastering your course material faster and more effectively, you'll start to see your results go up, maybe just slowly at first, especially if you're kind of a bit new to all of this. But as you start to see those green shoots, uh, you start to see those early signs of progress. It becomes a heck of a lot easier to know in your heart that you can get there, that you can grow and change and make tomorrow better than today. Pillar number two. So look, I'm really excited for you uh, as you begin your journey uh, or advance your journey uh, with these six pillars. Genuinely wish you every success and I look forward to joining you for the next part of the series very soon. Wishing you every success in your studies. Thanks for listening. If you've got exams coming up, you can now get all of William's favourite tips and tricks to save you time and get you higher grades all in one handy cheat sheet. Grab your copy at examstudyexpert.com slash free tips. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.